Welcome to the Price Lab Podcast, a series focusing on digital humanities and how scholars got to where they are now. We're joined today by Katie Rawson. Katie is the Director of Learning Innovation at the University of Pennsylvania's Libraries. Katie has published on food in Faulkner's writings, labor at Waffle House, collaboration in the academy, and data curation in the humanities. Her current research is in menus and restaurant history. Thanks, uh, Katie Rawson, for coming here today. Um, I just wondered whether you could just tell us a little about your background in the digital humanities. Like, how did you arrive in this field of study? I went to grad school at the Graduate Institute of Liberal Arts at Emory University, which is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure of graduate programs, and I was interested in food studies, particularly in the U.S. South, and I did not imagine myself really doing digital work. Like, I had kind of a background, like, messing around with computers and publishing and design, and, like, I had done some video work, but, like, I didn't think of this in terms of digital humanities at that time. But I ended up working for a journal of space and place in the U.S. South, and I worked for it because of its content. But it happened to be an online multimedia open access journal. And so through that, I got a whole range of digital skills. And also it was in uh, starting in 2008. So digital humanities was really peaking in a lot of ways. Emory got a very large grant from the Mellon Foundation who have really like helped to shape digital humanities on many campuses. And so I ended up being a DH fellow and then I got a postdoc at Penn. And so as I said, I went to this weird interdisciplinary program, which means that I was already pulling together methods from social sciences and, and also methods from the humanities. And in addition to that, like one of the things that I've done in digital humanities is be like, oh, like this multimedia and recording stuff. And then like, oh, wait, I can learn how to do computational text analysis. And now I am getting into uh, virtual reality and 3D modeling, which I didn't like think I would ever learn how to do, but it's totally cool. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I'm really sort of interested about the variety of methods that you're and tools that you're using. Right now, my job is a little bit odd in terms of thinking about like how I am using digital tools. So most of my research at this point is ethnographic research, and I'm not actually doing much digital work with them. I'm more thinking about how people do digital work. But in the part of my work where I support people in teaching and learning across Penn, um, what we're trying to do is make it so that people can start to incorporate uh, in some ways incorporate the material world into the kind of scholarship that they're doing. So with 3D modeling, the idea is with that there are like objects in the world and if you could manipulate them in a digital space, you could start to do some of the things that we have been able to do with things like text. So part of the appeal of, uh, of computational text analysis is that you can see patterns that you couldn't see before, that you can manipulate and share things that you couldn't manipulate and share before. And so now what I've been doing is working with people who have objects and want to do this, or who have spaces where part of what they're interested in is like, what is the what is the human experience of this space? How do things relate to each other? And that can be like remaking historical places that don't exist anymore, or uh, right 
right now, uh, Peter DeCherney took a bunch of students and they went to Puerto Rico and they worked with artists thinking about the work that they were doing in the post-Maria context. And so they basically filmed all of these artists using a 360 video that'll go into a virtual reality format. If you have the chance, it's amazing. Like, it's such a different experience of what it means to capture a place. Um, and as someone interested in, in anthropology and ethnography, like this notion of actually being able to capture the spatial experience of places as well as the way that they look is, I, like, I think it's extraordinary. Can you give us an example of your sort of day-to-day -day operations within the pedagogical space? A lot of what my team ends up doing is uh, we sit down with professors or other instructors who are interested often in trying a new approach to teaching. And often that involves technology. It doesn't always, right? Like there are a lot of amazing ways to teach that aren't, aren't technologically rich. But what we often do end up doing is work, working with people on um on kind of technical work. So one example of this is our people in the education commons. Hava and Megan worked with a class that was a theater class and they worked with the students creating 3D models of stages and then they printed them out and then they lit them with the idea that like our understanding of staging and lighting can be different if we do it in the concrete instead of just imagining it. Um, and so their job was really working with the faculty member to try and figure out, okay, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to give the students the skills that they need? And we also provided access to the 3D printers and like the modeling software and all that jazz. And what is your pedagogical experience? Like, how, do you, how have you taught uh, the digital humanities? I have taught the digital humanities in kind of a variety of, I think, both failed and successful ways. A lot of my work, because I've worked in libraries for the past five years, has really been uh, often in working with faculty or in kind of like co-curricular one-offs. So students want to learn how to do this stuff. They understand the ways that being able to do something like computational text analysis might be able to transform the work that they're doing. And so what I often end up doing is uh, running workshops that sometimes start people with like, okay, you're in the humanities this is what a variable is, right? Like, this is what we mean when we say a function. This is how computers work, which, like, I think is a fundamental piece of helping humanists work in the digital humanities, is really understanding, like, what are we trying to do? And, like, what are the logics that this allows us to manipulate? And so a lot of what I teach is like a mixture of like, okay, how do you literally press the buttons? And also like, why are you pressing the buttons? I have been in an ongoing conversation with a friend who has been trying to map the lynchings that Ida B. Wells recorded about. And lots of her questions have been around like, what does it mean to put a pinpoint on a map of this kind of data. For her, the question is, how do I make this a map of white violence and not a map of black death? Which I think are the questions that like make this work actually interesting. 
despite the fact that like really a lot of what I like literally teach is like okay so you're gonna want to do x and y and z I think that the larger world that I work in is like and why are we doing x and y and z so can you just tell us then perhaps some drawbacks that you've encountered as you've engaged the, the digital humanities in your research and teaching For me, I've never walked into a classroom where everybody has the same level of familiarity and skill. And I understand that that is that is true of all things, right? Like I, I started the first class that I ever taught was uh, a writing class. So like I taught English 101 for years. And like, I understand that like, this is just the nature of teaching is that like, you end up in a room with a lot of people who have really really different experiences. But I find that in lots of other frameworks, people have lots of different experiences, but at least they've all been a little bit like acculturated to the sense that, oh, I am expected to read, I am expected to write, right? Like that even though some people have been better trained than others, or some people have more experience than others, that the idea that someone might walk into the room and be like, oh, I didn't know that there was another word for code. And in the same classroom, you might have someone who has been coding since they were five, um, which I think is like a really, a really tough thing to figure out. Like, how do you get everybody on the same page? And then on top of that, there's like the very literal technological problems. Um, like the fact that everybody has a different computer, like, oh, we're working on different operating systems. And like, oh, man, you're, <laughs> you have a firewall that's like not allowing you to download this stupid thing. And um, that is like, in some ways, it's really easy in digital humanities work to get bogged down in the detail that is not the intellectual question, but is labor that has to be done. The further I get along in this, the more that I believe that if we are going to do this stuff well, we have to be so tightly scoped in terms of what we want students to learn. Like, what do we want them to take away? And then how do we build things that have, as, in some ways, as little technological wiggle as is feasible in order to get those ideas across? So one of the things that I love that you're talking about is actually the way that digital humanities can actually mire into more traditional humanities. So I I sort of wonder whether you can talk a little about what can digital humanities do that traditional humanities can't and perhaps vice versa? In some ways, one could also say like, what can close reading do that like mapping can't, right? Like, so there are some ways that this is like, this is like a false question that digital humanities has decided to set up, but I will answer it anyway. So I think that one of the answers is around scale. That in fact, you really, you really cannot attentively read 30,000 works. Um, you could read 30,000 works, but you couldn't do it in the way that requires an attention to very fine-grained detail that a computer can. Um, 
and that a computer can when you program it to do that reading, right? Like there are always humans here, even when there are machines. But I think that that is something that we that we can do now that we could not do before, that there is something about scale. And like, I know that people had decades long projects that looked like this in the past, right? Like there are concordance projects that lasted decades and decades and people did this work by hand. So in some ways, like you could, you could always do this work, but now you can do it at a rate where you can actually say something by the end of your career and someone can speak back to you. Um, I think that the other thing for me that I've been really excited about, so lots of my own work, as I said, is in food studies, and I'm really interested in sensory experience. And I do think that there is a way, that there's a piece of digital humanities that um, in some ways is close friends with media studies, and that I think that these paths of 3D modeling and virtual reality really might be able to offer us sensory experience of a variety of ways of lives and moments of living that we would not have had access to before. And I think that the way that we'll be able to capture and share and analyze knowledge by having these different recording forms um, is actually transformative and being able to like share experience that is mediated in a way that is different than uh, textual or photographic mediation. Can, can you say a little bit more about your food study, the, about this intersection between food studies and yeah. science studies and the digital humanities? Can you give us an example of what you're currently looking at? The spaces that I see this working that are quite interesting is the idea that um, the idea of being able to, so I do a lot of work about restaurants. And so I spend a ton of time, like, I also really like beautiful description. And so my dissertation, which is terrible, no one should go and look at it, uh, includes like lots of really kind of what I am trying to do is include kind of rich and lush descriptions of what is happening because restaurants are spaces where um, the like, social and sensory is so important and like the relationship of people between uh, between themselves in the kitchen or between a human and a waiter, like the ways that space is used, the way that sound is used is so important for really understanding like what are the kinds of relationships that are happening here? How does labor move in restaurants is one of the things that I'm intellectually really interested in and what's the relationship between customers and their understandings of that labor and the people who are actually doing the labor. So right, like people have long done work like this and you can describe it. But one of the things that we could do now is that I could go into a Waffle House and then someone could go into a Waffle House in a VR experience and you could have them walk through this experience as a customer and walk through this experience as a waitress. And that whatever I would be able to say about that that they would be able to get pieces at the edges that would allow them to form different kinds of knowledge. So I also have like a small background in observational filmmaking. It's like you come in with a camera, it's like long shots, uh, handheld long shots, and that um, being able to watch people as opposed to doing interviews with them is actually a way to like really understand what is happening. Um, and with the understanding that of course, the thing that the filmmaker is looking at is going to shape 
how you understand things. And what's crazy about VR, sorry, I'm just so excited about this, like that in filmmaking, you decide to look at things in a particular way, but when you film 360, you don't get to tell people where to look. What you get to decide is you get to decide where the camera is set, and you get to decide, I guess, who you're with, because the the space that you are in is the container of the frame. And so, like, I think that it that in terms of what observational cinema like kind of suggests that it might be able to do, I think that it really like ups the ante on that actually being a possibility. If I understand correctly, you've been doing digital humanities for a very long time to some extent. Can you sort of ex- can you sort of describe how the field has changed? One piece of change that I am excited about where I think digital humanities has not changed enough but is moving and I feel really grateful to be part of a group of people who are trying to push this forward is that uh, digital humanities, like much of the academy, is white, white, white. It I think has been historically exquisitely white. And one of the things that I have noticed over time is that there is more and more space for uh, digital humanities that's focusing on the lives of people of color. There's a whole movement of black digital humanities that's really uh, in some ways taking off across the mid-Atlantic, which I think is really exciting for Penn also. Um, And I hope that we will do more and more of these kinds of projects that are really thinking about like how we take these kinds of methods and use them to try and think about, uh, in, in this case, think about black lives and try to like record and express and work with and analyze and engage with, um, with black lives and black communities. And I think that that is quite exciting. And I also think the way that that kind of move can um, decenter or complicate or ask new questions about technology, right? Because like one of the other things we know is that lots of these things that are being used in digital humanities to like, oh, ask really fascinating questions um, are being used in lots of other places to like, oh, profile people terribly, right? Um, And so I do also think that there's a question about how this kind of engagement could actually change the technology and our ethics around these technologies as well. So I think that that is like an exciting turn. And I guess going along with that, this idea of digital humanities as a way to think about um, community knowledge building. So not just being something that's solely in the academy. So I think that the idea of it being a strong partnership with the community is actually something that's like continuing to grow and that I find exciting. So thank you very much, um, Katie Rawson, for answering our questions. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. The Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania would like to thank Penn Libraries, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and our Price Lab fellows for their support in producing this podcast. To learn more about the work of the Price Lab, you can visit us at pricelab.sas.upenn.edu.